You can support the Double Loop Podcast by contributing at patreon.com slash double loop podcast. Thank you to our supporters, and we hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the Double Loop Podcast, your source for everything about fingerprints. While you're working on your comparisons, we'll talk about comparisons. I'm Eric Ray. And I'm Glenn Langenberg. Well, Glenn, um, as a little fun fact for today, I got to refer to something. I guess it went around on Facebook a couple months ago. Um, But it's this news article uh, that came out in April that's titled, How Seagulls, Pepperoni got Dartmouth man banned from posh BC hotel. Did, did, you, oh, wow. did you hear about this at all? No, no. Okay. There's a lot there though. So Strap I can't wait in. to see how this unfolds. The Fairmont Empress in Victoria, BC, which I guess is a pretty dang fancy hotel. 17 years ago, put a ban against this guy named Nick and it lasted for 17 years until finally being lifted this year. So 17 years, I'd be back in like, you know, oh, 2001 or so. Um, so, okay, so this guy flies to Victoria, BC from the east coast of Canada, and he's got a bunch of friends in the Navy, and they said, hey, can you please bring us some Brothers Pepperoni, which is a, like, a delicacy in Halifax? So he loads, he goes to Brothers Pepperoni, Brothers Meats or whatever, and buys a small suitcase full of pepperoni because you know navy guys he's figuring he needs to bring enough for a whole boat he flies to victoria bc bag gets lost he finally gets the bag and brings it up his to his hotel his hotel room and while it's a very nice hotel room it doesn't have a refrigerator so he figures well it's nice and kind of cool outside you know pepperoni is not going to go bad but maybe it should cool off for a bit i know i'll open up the window and lay out this pepperoni on the windowsill. You know, kind of like a, cooling a pie on the windowsill? Yeah. And then he decides to go for a walk. So, like, four hours later, he comes back, and he's walking down the hallway to his room, open up his room, and there is a flock of seagulls. Not, not like I ran so far away flock of seagulls, but like a literal flock of seagulls. He says, you know, like 40 in his room, feasting, on Brothers Pepperoni. <laughs> well, evidently, Brothers Pepperoni does not do nice things to the digestive system of seagulls. And they proceed to just crap everywhere. The entire room is just covered in seagull... Guano? No, but bats. It's just shit. <laughs> There's shit everywhere. And it doesn't help that he's now opened the door and startled them all because he's now scared the shit out of them. So he... Literally. Yes, literally. Uh, so he, he tries to shoo them all out the window. One tries to fly back in. He throws his shoe at it, which then makes his, his shoe just flies out the window. He finally gets them all out. Uh, goes down, retrieves his shoe, which is now wet from falling down to the bottom of the of the, the hotel so he puts it he goes to the puts it in like the sink and um puts like the hair dryer in his shoe to try to dry it off because he just got hired by this company and he has a business meeting in like half an hour <laughs> the the hair dryer falls like into the sink or somehow shorts out like half the hotel uh, he finishes getting dressed and has to just go to the meeting coming back he finds um, that there's a hotel employee in his room who looks around and, and sees just this completely trashed hotel room. All he can think to say is, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> That's probably more like it being from sorry Halifax. Sorry that. So um, he wrote a letter to the hotel, posted it on Facebook again back in like April, and uh, has asked, it's been 17 years, may I please stay at your hotel? <laughs> and um, he said he just apologized, tried to explain the situation now, and left them a present of about a pound of Brothers TNT pepperoni as a peace offering. And oh, they is. have forgiven him and allowed him to now resume staying 
at uh, at the Empress Hotel in Victoria. That's pretty fascinating. So uh, again, just t- type in seagulls and pepperoni, and you can probably find it online if you want to read the entire story. But I was very much entertained when I came across this online. Yeah, be careful about what you type in, though. I imagine <laughs> flock of seagulls crap all over hotel room, or man tries to give his salami to seamen in the Navy. Um, Glenn, <laughs> you're terrible. <laughs> Just be, be careful about your, your selection of Google search words. Go with, go with BC pepperoni seagulls, and, and you'll, you'll end up in the right place. Um, all right, Glenn, I want to uh, say a quick thing about our sponsors. So with the California Wine Club, uh, let's say that uh, you're not, you know, maybe a, a two bottles of wine every month kind of person. You just kind of want to put it in order uh, for some sort of specific uh, bottle of wine instead of letting that, that company pick it for you. you can what, also if go I, to... what if I'm on two bottles a day or a week? <laughs> well, then you got to order, you know, maybe by the case or something. So what's going on? What uh, what, what kind of wine would you would you be going for specifically uh, from the CA Wine Club? Well, especially a California wine, a, P- a Pinot Noir. I mean, I love that. I love the Oregon Willamette Valley uh, Pinot Noirs, but California's got some good ones. Paso yep. Robles too, and that sort of California wine. There, there are a number from cawineclub.com of Pinot Noirs. They also uh, have. You know, different regions, so you can order stuff from the Pacific Northwest, you know, Washington, Oregon, or okay. from Europe or other regions. Uh, but if you just head over to cawineclub.com and, you know, if you don't want to join the club and have, uh, you know, new wine shipped to you every month, you can just pick out the kind of bottles that you want. And on orders of $40 or more, if you enter in the promo code double loop, you can save 15% on that order. So. Awesome. Glenn, uh, you know, or other listeners out there, you know, take a look and see if you can find something that you like uh, oh, delivered sure right to your door. <laughs> I'm sure you can too. Hey, why don't we uh, give out our Twitter too? Let, yeah. uh, letting listeners know that uh, please um, follow us on Twitter at Double Loop Pod. Uh, Glenn and I've been uh, and and our, our super fan that, that's helping us out. Uh, we've been doing pretty good at posting most days uh, on the Twitter, putting out the tweets and. Um, Mondays, we've got a, kind of a thing going, putting out uh, clips from movies or TV shows that reference fingerprints. I found some good good examples so far. I'm really pleased at, at what we've managed to dig up, and there's definitely more to come on that. Uh, so follow us at Double Loop Pod if you're on the Twitters, and uh, you know tweet back or interact with us uh, there. So uh, anyway, last episode we talked to John. We, we promised going right into a discussion with Carrie. But um, our, our discussion with Carrie ended up being a little on the long side. So we're going to join in with uh, with our conversation with her in now a completely separate episode. Uh, so let's let's cut in uh, to our discussion with Carrie about this AAAS report. Yeah, I wanted to uh, welcome another guest here. We have Carrie here. And uh, Carrie, well, I've known Carrie now for quite a few years going back, and we've had a chance to work on lots of different projects together. Uh, but hi, Carrie. Welcome to the show. Hello. Thank you for having me again. Thank you. And uh, specifically, we're hoping to tonight you could talk about your experience on the AAAS report. We just had John Black on in the first half of the show uh, talking about what it was like on the committee, one of the four committee members who were authors of the report. But you and other people uh, that you know, he even referenced uh, were doing some of the editing and not editing, um, uh, critique, the peer commentary, review, peer, sort of, review, yeah. peer review. You, why don't you talk a little bit about your role and how you got involved and yeah. ask, you, ask you a few things and thoughts and comments about the report after. Sure. So uh, John Black had first contacted me about helping with the primer, which is just a basic introduction to how latent print comparisons are performed the conclusions that we can reach. So I initially did some work with him on that. And then as the report was coming to a conclusion, he began to solicit some potential reviewers for the project. Uh, so he had texted me and asked if I had a, if I was willing to be a reviewer and if I had any other recommendations. So I threw a few names at him and 
um, of course, volunteered myself to look over this very comprehensive report, get a firsthand look at the the types of things that they were going to be reporting on, basically, the studies right. that they were going to be reviewing. And Carrie, I mean, you've actually had prior to this a little bit of experience as a reviewer for some journal articles and NIJ reports and other things, right? So this wasn't your first rodeo, you'd had some other previous peer review experience. Yes, I would say that this was most similar to an NIJ uh, review that the uh, the authors put together this report and then the peer reviewers would make comments, but not necessarily something that needed to be adjudicated or changed before the, the report would be published. So that's common in an NIJ final report that the reviewer looks over everything and makes a makes some recommendations, but it's not necessarily something that the author has to address in order for the publication to to be released. So that was definitely the case in this in this particular instance. <laughs> so right, so definitely if, the case. If, huh? if we hear you right. <laughs> if there was something you completely objected to or flat out had a serious problem with, they really don't have to respond to you in any way. And even if even if something you you said like this is factually wrong or this is really problematic. They can just tell you to piss off, and they can they they can just issue the report and do whatever. Which was a very similar experience I had with the NIJ report reviews. One of the reasons I don't do those anymore is because I thought it was very fruitless. I would get involved, I would find things that I have real problems with study design or study data reporting, and say, look, if this was published in the journal, this would get rejected, and yet because it was NIJ research, they still had to get that out there, and and it often felt like. All that hard work was just possibly being ignored from a reviewer standpoint. It was very frustrating that you... Yeah, I, I think some of the reviewers actually remained anonymous in the report and refused to be named because they felt like this wasn't a true peer review. And, and mm. they had participated in other peer review formats and other real peer review journals and said, you know, from their perspective this didn't count as a peer review. And if the, the authors were not going to address their serious concerns and their the issues that they raised, then they would prefer not to be noted because essentially this piece was going out with their names saying, I was a reviewer. And yet there were these flaws that the reviewer had pointed out and said, I think you need to address these. So from their perspective, wow. they didn't want to be named on a report where they felt there was enough concern and enough issues that were unaddressed uh, to to be named in the as, as a reviewer, so you know to, that was probably the the biggest downside to participating in in reviewing the report. I mean, other than it was fairly long and comprehensive, but yeah, um, yeah, that was that was a dis- disappointing aspect. And I I feel because there were multiple authors, some reviewer, some authors did take the comments and the criticisms more seriously and did do some revisions and changing, but. Um, there were there were large sections that remained absolutely unchanged, despite I'm sure several comments from the reviewers uh, noting things that were concerning. Now, uh, did uh, did you consider having uh, your name taken off as well? Or when it became apparent that they were not that was not the way this was going to happen, they were not going to make changes, and they were not going to uh, you know continue the revision process based on feedback from the reviewers. Uh, my decision was, well, I've contributed to this. I put many hours into reviewing the studies and making comments. I've done the best that I can. I think it's important for people to know that at least someone from the community looked at it. And at that point, I didn't know who the other reviewers were that I said, fine, you can, you can put my name on there. It's on there elsewhere because I had helped with the primer. So I thought already I'm into this. Oh, that's fair. Okay. Now, were there anything, well, let's, let's start with well, actually, let's start with the positive. Let's reverse it. What what about it <laughs> did idea. you did you like? What about it were you most proud of? And went no, they they got that really well. They captured and covered that topic, and I appreciate that this was something that needed to get out there. Well, I think from the from the perspective of this was a gap analysis. So the intent of the project from a from a broad perspective, it really was a noble intention. And if you look at the way that they constructed the gap analysis, they went back and they looked at a whole bunch of research that had been published. And so they were, as the uh, authors, they were assigned to do these reading assignments and to really cover all of the research that had been published over this period of time. And I can't remember the span of years, but... um, And and, and to 
PCAST had not come out at this point either. No, so it had. At, at the time, though, that this was being written, it came out in that period. Yeah, they had they had reviewed PCAST at that point because in one of oh. the sections, in fact, they said, you know, we disagree and find that there's uh, oh, I, okay. nothing reliable. I, it, I'm jumping ahead to the bad, but... Uh, you know, they, they disagreed with PCAST finding that there was a reliable basis for the conclusions that are drawn after a uh, comparison process. So, okay. All right. so that, that's the part of the bad. But in the, fa- in the fact that this was a comprehensive review, I really do feel like this was a great resource, if nothing else, for a bibliography purposes. Mm-hmm. You get a really good sense of all of the research that has been published in many, many domains, you know, human factors, Statistical models, APHIS, uh, you know, human performance, the white box and black box, white box and black box, um, minutia characteristics. So there's, you know, an absolute amazing amount of material that was covered in the in the report. And it was covered by people who know their stuff. I mean, it wasn't as if this was, you know, someone who was coming in who had really no basis for any previous experience. Some were a little newer to the discipline than others, but I think given that it was a committee um, approach, that's okay to have people that are sort of newer and, and more experienced people working together. So, um, you know, I was I was impressed with the amount of material that they covered. I, I thought some of the some of the studies that were missing were notable or some of the ways in which they portrayed some of the studies. For instance, you know, PCAST didn't cover the Kalman and Manukin study, and then nor did this research, so this gap analysis. So I, I thought it was funny that in both of these these uh, reviews of examiner performance, even though it has error rates in the title, it was not covered by either of these groups. So hmm. um, I pointed that out to them and said, hey, look, you know, there's uh, image processing here. They did some advanced um software processing to be able to make these determinations as compared to examiner performance. So I really felt that that should have been included, but it wasn't. $750,000 for, for right. a study that right. no one seems it's to be citing, citing in yeah. these very critical yes. reports. Right. And it, you know, as I said, it has air rates in the title. They did some <laughs> advanced, uh, you know, image software issues comparing to what examiners rate of difficulty. So it was, in my opinion, a great paper and really, really should be used more often. Um, so it, I thought it was unfortunate they left it out. Um, one of the other things that I noted to them, you know, they left a place for the reviewers to attach documentation. So I actually attached um, the II newsletter that included some references to the European, a survey of the European examiners and whether or not they used uh, probabilistic reporting or verbal scales. Because within the gap analysis, they were purporting that all of Europe is doing this and that yeah. sort of assuming that America is so behind and, and not doing this. And so my response was, okay, well, here, I'm, I'm giving you data that actually shows that that is not the case. Uh, right. <laughs> I, I've taught over there, and that is not the case. Right. No. So... <laughs> They 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 just regarded that as well. And there were several other points in there that you know they they were talking about this uh, MC reporting scheme and the MC standards for uh, probabilistic conclusions. And so they had said, "What well, can you spell that acronym out?" E N F S I. Right. Okay. MC. European Network of Forensic Science Institutes. Yep. If anyone wants yep. to look it up. Yeah. Yep. Uh, they have essentially two different categories of reporting. So in the investigative stage, they can report probabilistic conclusions, uh, but in the for court, they do categorical conclusions. So in the gap analysis, they were reporting that this is a practice that Europe does. And my point, my point to them and my comment was that this is sort of a misrepresentation. It's certainly Absolutely. they have the op- option to do that in the investigation stage, but not investigative reporting, but not in the um, reports prepared for court purposes. And I don't know that it's rampant throughout Europe. It might be part of that MC, which makes some good recommendations, but I don't know to what extent all of those recommendations are adopted. Right. And that was the point of the II survey that was done to show that many of the uh, 
respondents in that particular Sunday survey were were showing that they did not follow the MC guidelines on the uh, probabilistic reporting. So, uh, you know, I thought that was important distinction for them to make that, you know, this isn't, this may not apply to the American standards because we don't have two types of reporting schemes at this point. Right. We don't have investigative reports for the most part. We, we prepare our reports in a single fashion and report them um, one time. One of the things they point out is that, you know, all of these black box studies that have been out, the accuracy studies that have been uh, published, all the examiners know that they're being tested. And critics generally will jump on that as kind of the, and sometimes even invalidating the entire uh, accuracy study because the examiners knew they were being tested and then questioning whether that can be applied to uh, you know, casework as a whole, one of the suggestions, recommendations they make here is um, getting government funding or somehow having an agency or a lab uh, conduct accuracy study by introducing ground truth samples into casework for examiners to work. Now, maybe it's just because it's one of the last things that people keep harping on, but I would absolutely love to see that uh, come to fruition. Um, I kind of love that whole suggestion. It's just going to take some agency with money or time or resources or, or a grant to actually get it done. Yeah. I, Bill Thompson, who is one of the authors of the gap analysis, attends the Friction Ridge subcommittee meetings uh, sometimes. He, he's uh, the chair of the Human Factors Committee of the OSAC group. So he often gets to come into the, the meeting groups and talk to us. So he and I have had this conversation many times. And um, one of the things that I continue to say to him is that, you know, some of the la- some of the labs are doing these blind testing. And do we have a good sense of how this blinding and how these, um, you know, inserting these ground truth is affecting the accuracy? And right now we don't have any, any lab that's doing that. But, you know, of course, that would certainly be something that would be important to know, you know, in test, if the examiners don't know what the ground truth is and they don't know this is a test, how do they perform? Um, but, you know, my answer has always been this is really, really difficult for labs to do because we have quality assurance procedures that sometimes make this almost impossible to administer. <laughs> yeah. And and these redundancies in these, these quality assurance mechanisms are integrally important for the examinations we do. For instance, having, you know, police ICR numbers on the evidence items themselves. Okay, well, if it doesn't link up with anything in the in, in the laboratory system or in the police system, that's going to be immediately suspicious for examiners and should be suspicious. We, we have those, those mechanisms in place for examiners to recognize I'm not switching up evidence with this police incident with another police incident. And so trying to describe... Uh, some of the hurdles to the practicality of this research has really been something that I've struggled with for a while because we do have these quality assurance procedures in place and these mechanisms in place that might immediately alert an examiner to something being amiss. As it, as it should. It's right. it, so that you can't have falsified evidence or fabricated evidence right. inserted, so, into, inserted this, into the system. Into the forensic scheme. <laughs> so, you know... I, I would love for this to be done, and I think at some point it's going to be done. I, I don't think it's a, a matter of if it, it's really a matter of yeah. when it's going yeah. to be done. Yeah. The, the the question of how many labs need to participate, I mean, I think we all we keep seeing these criticisms come out that at what point do we have enough? And I think that was one of my other large problems with the report is that, you know, we have this great data on examiner performance right now. Yes, it's black box. Some of it's white box. Um, we're learning more and more about some of the dangerous practices within, you know, the ACV application. And so we, you know, we're getting all this informative information and this data, and yet it's still not enough to be able to say ACV is reliable or the way that examiners do their visual comparisons is a reliable practice. And that was really the most frustrating part of the report for me is that uh, there was an entire section that essentially said none of this demonstrates that examiners are capable of making these decisions reliable, reliably. And that was, um, you know, for me, that was that was it. I just I couldn't I said examiners are going to disregard this entire section because you've lost credibility at this point. Right. I mean, at least 
at least say that the papers that are out now, the research that's out now, uh, suggests that that uh, examiners, you know, might be highly accurate in these comparisons. You know, at least I mean, even Simon Cole gives us that. Mm-hmm. So that was that was a difficult to deal with. Particularly, it was after the section on human factors, and the human factors had some very strong recommendations. You know, linear ACE V, um, blinding yeah. procedures, context management. And they were all based on what I'm going to describe as weak empirical evidence. Uh, you know, it, it's not that I disagree with human factors affecting the examination process, and I won't say that they, you know, they, that they have no effect. However, they're often using non-latent print expertise domains exactly. to generalize to our comparison process, and so they've got these very strong recommendations with what I'm calling weak empirical support for how that affects the latent print examination. And then yet we have this strong evidence of them being highly accurate and making their conclusions, at least in the identification context. Uh, and then they're saying, well, there's no basis for examiners making that, right. being able to, yes. to make those conclusions. And I would say the opposite. The empirical evidence actually shows we're quite good at making the identification. Maybe we haven't identified exactly what examiners are using to be able to reach that conclusion, uh, but we certainly have a stronger data and and evidence in the performance perspective than we do in some of the human factors arena. Not that it's not important or we're disregarding it, but you you can't move from that section that says you must do this, even though there's no empirical support for this. We're generalizing from other expert domains to latent prints. And then you get to the section on latent print performance and you say there's no empirical evidence to support them being able to make these determinations. And, and even in the you know, evidence for on that human factors, the evidence even in our domain suggests that we're really resilient to, to that kind of bias. Uh, even when people like Drawer does that, you know, does the studies on, uh, on bias and shows that, you know, we can be affected by these human factor things. It's, it's broadened from just affecting the exclusion decision to affecting, uh, identifications, which is a completely whole different thing. We've talked about, you know, a a whole bunch. My problem is the double standard. That if you take the PCAST report, the NAS report, or this AAAS report, and the way that they critique, as Carrie's talking about, the human performance studies, and they they set criteria and go, this is how we evaluate if these are good studies, but they have never done that to the biased human factor studies. Uh, Haber is the same thing. The Habers will go through and criticize to the extent of all of these human performance studies and go, no, these are basically invalid. They tell us nothing. But yet, if they were to apply those exact same criteria to the human factors bias studies, many of those studies would immediately be thrown out for not having a control group, for uh, not, you know, I, not... Only having five people. <laughs> not representative sample. Not representative sample of some case work or a number of different things that have been pointed out and yet, again, they're allowed to, as Carrie points out, make extremely strong recommendations and conclusions based off of those. Not that I, I doubt some of those things. It's just it's the double standard of why are you treating these studies this way, but not treating these human factors studies that kind of make your point and happen to be in your expertise domain that you like the psychological realm. Why aren't you applying it the same the, you know, evenly? Yep. Yep. So, uh, Carrie, we, we, we went over uh, with uh, with John the uh, the wording that they suggest for the you know, association to replace identification. Um, so let me let me read you real quick uh, their recommendation and just kind of get your comments. We got some comments from John, and we talked about this earlier, but to uh, get some get some of your comments okay. t- uh, as well. So the latent print on Exhibit X and the record fingerprint bearing the name Y have a great deal of corresponding ridge detail with no differences that would indicate they were made by different fingers. There is no way to determine how many other people might have a finger with a corresponding set of ridge features, but this degree of similarity is far greater than I have ever seen in non-matched comparisons. So I'm assuming you had some thoughts on this when you when you did your review for the paper? Yeah, you know, I think that that is essentially a very long way to describe our conclusion. Um, you know, a lot of those elements are essentially saying, 
I've judged and I've assessed the correspondence. I found correspondence, which we do when we make an identification decision. We are assessing whether or not it could be shared in another source. So again, it's the longer answer there. What the examiner personally expects to find in another source with the added caveat that they're saying there's no way for me to I haven't run this through essentially a database and I don't necessarily have a database in my brain that's going to tell me all the other hundreds of thousands of comparisons that I've done that might share these set of common features. I judge that to be, you know, fairly low and so I'm going to I'm going to jump into this conclusion box. It's a super long answer and people I don't know how many people how many lay people are going to understand the nuances of an answer at that length. I don't know how many examiners are going to be able to memorize those components. In fact, as I just (laughs) spit it back to you, I chopped it up in probably three or four different pieces and did it in different orders. And you're supposed to follow up with statements from the PCAST report about error rates and then get into a confidence interval in six to eight more sentences. And you were simply asked, and what was your opinion? Right. Was this an identification? Right. I think that's a, you guys need a whole nother podcast on uh, what judges, what attorneys ask and what you can answer. Mm. I'm sure you maybe have covered those topics, but uh, yeah, I, I think, I think it's a long answer to essentially describe the identification decision. So I, I don't have huge heartburn with the way that they've phrased it. I think they're trying to make each of the elements more explicit to what value that adds, I don't know. I mean, I, I yeah. think, again, this yeah. is an important question of, are people confused by what identification means? And we've seen a bit of research that might be coming out uh, that, yes, maybe they don't understand the level of associ- association that identification means. John Bill Thompson's yes. Yeah, I think yeah. we covered that on a yep. couple episodes back. So so there's certainly some, some opportunities to explore how lay people understand, you know, expansion of conclusions and whether or not they would know that an identification means this, you know, I think that's an option, but I think this is too lengthy of an answer to give in court when they want to know what is your conclusion. And succinctly, that's a super long answer. Right. If they follow up with what do you mean by an identification? Okay, fine. Right. But But there's ask you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I think that's a, that's, that's a, that's a very good point to make. If you, if you just are asked your opinion, you can just say what it is. And hopefully there's some follow-up. You maybe even can encourage follow-up by the prosecution. And then you can kind of go into more of these points. But um, Right. We define identification as such. Would anyone here in this room or there in Arizona have a problem <laughs> with that as boilerplate language, though, tacked onto point. the end of your report? That here's what the definition of identification. I, I, as, I, as I said earlier in the podcast, you know, I don't, and that's what I do. Um... I would I wouldn't use it uh, verbatim. Um, okay. well, uh, I know it's the unusual probably be off off putting to you that in my opinion this set of features would be unusual. Right. Q, Q Tom Jones at this point. <laughs> Maybe I'll put that in an editing. Uh, but uh, yeah, yeah, that that's that's kind of it. It's it's a bit past that. Um, uh, well, Carrie, all right, so as we sort of wrap this up, uh, any any other comments you wanted to make about the AAAS report, or thoughts that you'd like to leave the listeners with? Sure. I think I think two final things, and, and this, this one, first one relates to the conclusions. Um, they went through the uh, Army Crime Lab's conclusion and talked about how they didn't quite feel like that was uh, appropriate and how that language didn't quite work. And my expectation is that there's going to be some debate about how the conclusions of the evaluation stage really are are expressed and defined as, you know, as time goes on. Because there really seems to be no clear answer about what the best way to describe the, the conclusions of the expert really are. Um, so there's probably some pros and cons to all their approaches. So I think that we should look forward to some pros and cons, and then as a community come together and decide what we think is the best. I think that's something that we're going to need to do and something that's really an area of research need. Uh, And then finally, related to court, I I know that this report is really rather challenging, particularly some of the language that says there's no basis for being able to 
conclude identification. Mm-hmm. So I expect that this is this is going to be something, uh, you know, if this is plopped down in front of you as you're going through uh, cross-examination, you're going to have a moment of, oh, gosh, oh, man. Do you um, think it makes it more difficult, too, that this is one of the few You've been living that... in Minnesota too long. Oh, <laughs> gosh. True. Oh, gosh. <laughs> <laughs> Having an actual practitioner be one of the authors, do you think that makes it a little more difficult? I mean, you know, PCAST, NAS, one could dismiss those if they wanted to go, as we've heard many times, well, there were no actual practitioners. So one has a practitioner on it. Maybe. I mean, I think that's, an, for the other reports, to be honest, I think that's an easy cop out. I that, uh, you know, being unfamiliar with the material and not being able to express an expert opinion about why you disagree with XY or, you know, some point of the content of either of those reports. Um, Just saying there wasn't a practitioner involved, I think, is is too easy of a of a cop out. But for this report, you know, given that there was one examiner involved, we don't know, you know, which parts he authored. So we don't know whose opinion is whose. uh, But but. That doesn't absolve the examiner from having to be familiar with the content and say, I agree with this section. I don't agree with that section. And given that I was a reviewer, I mean, I certainly have already been through that aspect of these are the parts that I felt were well done. These are the parts that I feel I agree with these recommendations. These are important step forwards or, you know, I I agree with this concept, but we need to firm it up with a bit more empirical research or like, I absolutely disagree with that statement. And this is why I disagree. Um, going through and doing that for yourself is going to be important to be able to answer those questions. And really, I think that's that's an integral part of being an expert witness. If you're not prepared to answer those questions, absolutely, you, you may not can keep your credibility in the eyes of the, the jury, but also, you know, you're going to have your conclusion diminished if you can't answer some of those questions and articulate why you agree or disagree. Yeah, I mean, this is your job, people. You know, this this is the thing that you need to know. Uh, all of the papers, this paper, AAAS, but then all of the things that they reference here, you should be already, you should already know and be able to point out where AAAS went wrong in evaluating all the papers that they're referring to. Or find the content. I mean, frankly, as you guys cover the papers that are out um, and cover this particular report, maybe you don't have time to read the 90-some page gap analysis, but you 160 have, pages. 160 pages. Okay, so I made it shorter <laughs> in my brain. Uh, then you have time to listen to a half-an-hour podcast or you know an hour podcast to cover, cover the material. Right. Well, Carrie, thank you so much for coming on uh, the podcast with us tonight. Thank you for, for joining Glenn uh, there and, and, and talking about your involvement with, uh, with this report. Uh, I'm sure all the listeners out there are also really thankful. Um, so, but um, what, what, just curious, like, I know you, you've been up there in Minnesota. You grew up here in Arizona, right? I did. And uh, so, are you are you missing all the the monsoons, the haboobs that we're getting here uh, with, for for trading that in for the frigid winters there in Minnesota? You know, we get some decent storms here, so I I still get some thunderstorms and some humidity. So I I get the rain, I get the sun, but it's not a hundred and twenty. So I think my summers here are quite nice. Uh, it was only like know. it was only one twelve today. I mean, come right. on. Right. I think we may have gotten up to like a high of maybe 80 today. So, oh, wow. uh, yeah, it's going to it's going to be a great, great week as far as weather is concerned. Have you been up to anything else this summer? I've been rather busy this summer. I feel yeah. like every hurdle that I clear, I thought oh, I can just finally breathe. And then the next week is something something big and something new. So, uh, yeah, I had a, a Fry Mac hearing just the other week. Hey, we Ooh. may have to get into that in a whole different episode. Yes. Did you win? <laughs> we don't know yet. Well, uh, oh. Status unresolved really? at this point. Yeah. That's so Ralph Hal- okay. Haber was uh, contracted oh, to be the defense uh, expert. So he's come out twice now to Minnesota. So he's got to enjoy our our nice Minnesota weather. Um, but I did listen to a couple of the podcast episodes in preparation for the hearing. So 
There you go. I, I do think that's good advice for anyone who's trying to prepare for a hearing or has a difficult case coming up. Uh, podcast is certainly a good good reference. Um, what else have I been doing? I uh, had an OSAC meeting and uh, fo- shortly followed by a conference for Edemia, and it was their users conference. So it was out in yes. sunny California, out at the beach. That's um, Morpho is now Edemia. Is that the, is that what they say? <laughs> yeah, I, I, I haven't. Edemia, Edemia, something, Edemia. something close okay. to that. Yes, I, I admittedly say Edemia, but yeah, I think it's Edemia. But well, well you you are a stupid American. Edemia, <laughs> <laughs> yes. Edemia, okay. Yeah, in uh, fact, I had a chance to uh, go out there and present as well. Carrie and I yeah? did a, did a workshop. And the workshop was uh, for this research that we have been working on for an Idemia project uh, through my company. So um, my company had been contracted to research this case, APHIS. And I suspect in probably another few episodes, we'll probably have a chance to do an episode with some Idemia employees and talk about the, the case, oh, APHIS. Cool. But this workshop, uh, and Carrie can jump in here, was, was very, very cool. Uh, we had a chance to basically man versus machine. We had a packet of latents and knowns for human latent print examiners to search, and they had X number of hours to do it. And while they were working on their comparisons, I think we gave them like an hour or something, you know, to, to do. Uh, we had uh, one of the engineers loading up knowns, scanning them in, encoding them and scanning the latents and launching the latents and basically doing automated searches for a case APHIS approach to see, you know, how long the two would take and uh, the computer beat everybody. I think it ended up taking him 40 minutes to get everything loaded in. And this was, you know, um, eight fingerprint cards, eight palm prints. Um, I actually, I take that back. I think he, it only took him 15, 20 minutes to get the knowns in and then another 15 minutes or so to get the latents in. So probably no more than 35 minutes to get everything loaded in and searched and launched. And uh, and we went through the results later and it hit pretty much on every on every one of them. There was one little thing where uh, it was a little weird, but it, it still had hit the right individual. It just it was an odd one, but we, I was very impressed with the performance of it. Yeah, it was it was definitely interesting to pit the man versus machine, and we certainly have some interest in continuing this theme of man versus machine. But the the packet that we chose had explicitly been used in previous comparison classes, so we knew okay. approximately how long it took examiners to do these particular images, mm-hmm. and then we selected that packet. Not because it was extremely difficult or because we knew it would be problematic, but because we had a good sense of how long it would take examiners to manually compare those images. And we thought, yeah. okay, well, this is somewhat fair. They'll, it's not so challenging that they're not going to find any and they're going to give up immediately. You know, examiners clearly like a good challenge. So we had to have a range of some, some easy, some medium, and some hard. And uh, But it was clear in the end that the that using the case APHIS was really faster. It was a faster approach than doing a manual search. Some examiners found a few. I don't think anyone found all of them. Oh, no. no. But there was quite a range of how many how many examiners were able to find. But, you know, using the case APHIS certainly found all of them, uh, was able to identify all of them. Yeah, I think there were 10 latents for them to work with, and I think the most eight I saw people. were yeah eight against eight suspects, fingers and palms. But I think the most IDs I saw were seven or eight. Although I think a couple were wrong. Yeah. <laughs> <Not that> one. <laughs> so, uh, um, yeah, and and you know, Carrie and I are, are going to be doing some more research here. I've been able to use this uh, technology in some actual private case work, and I know that Idemia is very interested in uh, coming on the podcast, talking about their launch uh, for this technology, when it will be available. And I think we're going to do some things with them at the IAI, right, Eric? Yeah, that's absolutely the case. Um, you know, just like uh, we've done in years past where we, you know, find people 
at the vendor night uh, to, to interview. Uh, right. We're definitely going to get some of the people from uh, from that company on. You know, we just had our own local Arizona APHIS users conference, mm. also with uh, Idemia. And um, uh, just, you know, that was a great opportunity to kind of have people within the state, uh, you know, it's easier with budgets and stuff to send people just within yeah. your state. Eric, and that was spe- actually the first place that I ever presented. So my really? first ever presentation was at the <laughs> APHIS users conference. In in Arizona, that nice. In Arizona, yeah, yeah. Um, well, it was it went really well again this year. And when we got our new system a couple of years ago, one of the things we did, uh, especially actually teaming up with your old agency at Phoenix, uh, is trying to figure out kind of the best approach to move forward. And what they really zeroed in on is um, doing an auto code and launch, only asking for one candidate, where the only thing the user did is just draw a box around the latent. You don't mark pattern. You don't check for any, you know, misplaced minutia. You just hit the auto code button and let it go with one candidate. And, uh, most of the hits come back with that, uh, following that up with, um, you know, an actual user encoded search, uh, you know, gets even more and it goes from there. Yeah. And I actually talked to an examiner who is an old time guy, you know, one of those, um, started long, long time ago, uh, kind of examiners, uh, probably doesn't, I don't think he has a, you know, a bachelor's degree, even you, one of those guys, mm-hmm. um, was kind of, you know, hesitant about this. And he went back through and took all of the APHIS searches where he had marked up his own points and launched them, uh, where he got no hit, relaunched them all doing an auto coding. And he, for an entire year, he like took all the all the ones that had no hit over an entire year, relaunched him with an auto code, and ended up with another like twenty or thirty hits. So, wow, um, wow. the the power of not just the uh, just um, a case APHIS, but even an auto coding system, yeah. or giving the system multiple chances, not just more candidates, but different markups, yeah, uh, can really help things out. Um, yeah. I would say that that was probably one of the main themes of the conference and and not just this year, but in other years, the advances in the algorithms and the matchers really just has become rather incredible. And so it's magic. Yeah. So that the second part of that, of course, is how do you leverage that? So, uh, you know, Allison Lowell, who's the APHIS administrator for the Phoenix Police Department and is probably someone who, you know, she presented on that at the users conference and how Phoenix has implemented that approach that 60% of their identifications out of APHIS are coming out of this just box it, auto-code it, launch it off. And so they're having such a reduction in the amount of time and the amount of effort that they're spending just on these initial cases, being able to make that many IDs and get the cases out that much faster is really important for an agency who's doing such a volume of casework. So that, that yep. I think, was two of the really important messages is how incredible the matchers are becoming these days. And then what do you do about that from a policy perspective and, a, and an agency you know, volume perspective? How do you leverage that technology to make things better within your agency? So it was really great to see a different a variety of people talking about how they do that within their own agencies. And um, then, of course, they had... They had these focus user groups, so they explicitly sat down with their users and talked about what can we do from the product perspective to make your jobs easier. So how are you using our products and how can we interact? And so you you continue to do, you know, more efficient work or, you know, higher accuracy work. So those were those were some of the really um, interesting things, I think, that are important about these types of user conferences. I know most people tend to be a little hesitant about attending educational seminars that are sponsored by a particular vendor. And in this case, I I really have to say that, you know, they do a great job of bringing in speakers that uh, are from a variety of different agencies, utilize technologies in a variety of different ways. Yeah, they're not all salesmen. Right, right, absolutely. You know, these are the experts and these are the people who are using the technology. They had great case presentations. Um, but then the focus groups were also really important because I think it means that they're they're actually listening to how do examiners and how do the people who are using their systems 
want to use their products or how can right. they make them better. So, you know, that I think that really is important for uh, those types of interactions that not only are the examiners getting education, but they're sort of forming and they're able to provide feedback to the people who need it the most. And so those interactions, I think, are really important. Yeah, some of the stuff like what uh, what Allison was presenting on, you know, really came from being able to extract that data. And being able to extract that data came from when we implemented the new system, uh, insisting that this specific report that wasn't standard be included. Mm-hmm. And I'm really curious of how many other agencies that use the same system have access to this report. And they may not be able to get all this data without you know being able to interact with other users of the same system at a conference like this and be able to say, well, how'd you do all this? Well, here, we have this report in the in the system where we can extract all this stuff. You know, make sure that uh, uh, Idemia puts it into your system as well, yeah. uh, especially if you're going through an upgrade soon. Absolutely, um, yeah. That was yeah. definitely conversations that we had both, you know, in the question session after someone presented, but then they have so many events, social events, where you get to speak <laughs> yes. with, and you know, eat. Pe- uh. speak and eat and, and, and have the beverages. Yes, they, they provide an abundance of food and opportunity to, uh, you know, share, share tables and break the bread, if you will. Yeah. Uh, so definitely those conversations happen. I mean, we met a, an extraordinary amount of people who are using their products in a variety of different ways. And those were definitely something that some of the things that were shared is, okay, this is how you might go about pulling cold case data. Yeah. Uh, this is my, uh, how you might go about pulling data for years and years about hit rates or, right. so it was really co- rather incredible for, for people to share information and, and exchange information. And I think it was, you know, as I said, people might shy away from vendor specific conferences, but really there's there's no reason in this in this context that um, they provide intentionally a broad base of knowledge because they know that, you know, some people don't get to attend the major II conference. This might be the one conference they attend a year. And so they're going to get all of their knowledge at this particular conference. Yeah. And yeah. Oh, I was uh, Carrie. Carrie and I have both attended user conferences for other vendors too, and I think we have found the same thing. In other words, I, I would encourage, like she, like you just said, encourage listeners that you know everyone's, like you said, trying to always get to the II, but they really should consider whoever their vendor may be a user conference for educational and learning and training opportunities, and not necessarily look at it as a sales pitch conference. Absolutely, and and I know that you know. If you know any of the DNA analysts in your laboratory, this is something that, that they <laughs> do rather point. well. Excellent, um, excellent point. They, they, they host these conferences, and these are the, you know, the major conferences of the year. They're, yep, they're very expensive, but they, they have everything that the, the analyst needs right in the conference. They provide a plethora of educational experience and social activities. And so you know, these, are, these are the major conferences, and so... It's not unusual to send an analyst to a vendor-sponsored training. If anybody's getting pushback, just uh, just look up some of those DNA-sponsored trainings and realize they're all that, vendor-sponsored. <laughs> yeah, but the, the majority actually, you're right that the majority of the the conferences and educational material material are provided at these vendor-sponsored conferences. Well, the last time I went to the uh, Morpho at the time conference uh, in Southern California. Uh, Penny Deckant and I presented our exclusion workshop, which has absolutely nothing to do with with the APHIS product at all. You know, so I, I know them and other um, uh, vendors when they put on these kinds of conferences. You know, like you said, they're looking for a wide variety of different topics. So it it could even be a way to depending on you know who they book. They're they're also looking for uh, presentations that have to do with the discipline but not necessarily their product so um it, it like you said it is a wide base of different information and people uh to interact with uh just another kind of conference opportunity for that yeah and you know i think exclusions have been something that have been important to the discipline for quite a while now so it's not surprising to me that they would bring you and yep. penny out for an exclusion workshop um you know i think that our course, both the workshop and the, we did a uh, lecture 
on case APHIS capabilities, that really that was some of the selling points, that this has been a reoccurring theme for the for the discipline for some time now is how difficult these exclusion decisions are. And this is really how we, you know, we arrived at the solution of using automated technology to assist the examiner in some of these exclusion decisions. We know it's been a problem. In fact, you know, my my sentiment is is that, you know, if it, if this were available for the proficiency test, the competency test, the recertification test, that we would have a lot less errors. We're going to get in the research uh, test on another episode. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's going to have to be another episode. Uh, that we that we would we would have a lot less errors, and that this aided technology, this human and machine combination, exactly, because we're might... we're using different things when we evaluate the information. The machine and the human are looking at slightly different information in the print, and we both have our pluses and minuses, and fusing them together provides the highest accuracy. Absolutely, yep. Yeah. And we found that when we published the research data on case APHIS approach before. It's, if you relied solely on the machine, it would miss some identifications, some distortion identifications yep. that a human did find. And yet, conversely, if you relied solely on the human, you will miss many potential identifications yep. throughout you know, a long career. All right, Carrie, thank you so much for joining us uh, on this episode. Uh, like I said, we had to, to split it into two parts. Uh, but before we kind of really do the closeout... Uh, I, I want to talk a little bit to the listeners about Patreon. Um, so for you know, a little while now, we've had, uh, like I mentioned at the end of uh, the episode with John, uh, Patreon, a uh, little promo for that, start each episode, asking people to go on to uh, Patreon, search for the Double Loop Podcast, so they can sponsor the Double Loop Podcast. So one of the things that I was thinking, as you mentioned these sponsors, that this is yeah, very yeah. similar to the Medici family, which is an Italian family in the uh, period of Italian Renaissance. So if, if listeners are feeling like they, they want to be sponsors, similar to the very famous Medici family of Italy, they can visit Patreon and uh, make a donation to the Double Loop podcast. And um, if anyone is traveling internationally and visits Florence, uh, Italy, they can go and actually see the collection that the Medici family gathered throughout the entire Italian Renaissance period. It's considered one of the greatest art collections uh, of Italian Renaissance period. The Uffizi Gallery. And uh, so... Oh, so you've been to the, the Medici family um, galleries? I have. I have, actually. One of my wow. visits to Florence. Uh, it was the Uffizi Gallery. One Stout. of your many visits. I was going to say the same thing. Wait, wait, wait. One of your visits. How many times have you been? I've I've been once, but I visited <laughs> okay. other things in Florence. So the the statue of David is also in Florence, Italy. Uh, they also have wonderful gelato and fancy uh, leather shoes. They're known for their leather making in in Florence. So so. Here's the here's the thing I want to really impress upon listeners here, because you can be like the Medici's and sponsor the Double Loop podcast. The Medici's and their sponsorship directly led to three of the four Ninja Turtles, because they sponsored Donatello, <laughs> Michelangelo, and Leonardo. So I, I rest my case uh, for just a dollar a month. <laughs> so that's that's a good wrap up with with contemporary society. So exactly, exactly. we've got the high high class in the in the children's cartoons. Wait, 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 wait! wait. Oh, they were first oh, comic books. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Fine. Okay, nerds. So uh, anyway, uh, thank you guys so much for uh, thank you, Carrie, so much again for joining us on the Double It Podcast. For listeners out there, please uh, write into us Eric at RayForensics.com or Glenn at EliteForensicServices.com if you have any questions, follow-up stuff, your thoughts on the AAAS report. Uh, again, we're going to follow up with even more stuff on another whole episode. So hey, if there's specific things you want to, us to talk about, let us know. Yeah, yeah, Glenn. I was just thinking maybe if listeners have had the AAAS report used against them or had it mentioned in motions or just let us know if you have any experience with this. Even in moot court, is this something that you know, you're seeing? We've done other episodes 
in the past where PCAST is certainly showing up in these motions and these hearings and is being used and people are starting to be asked about error rates. So anything about the AAAS report that's out there? I, I, I know from experience, I have one case uh, related to that, uh, to the Daubert hearing that I talked about maybe a few episodes back and, you know, um, that we discussed. And the AAAS report was sort of referenced, but not really. It was referenced in the motion, but never really came out in uh, the, the testimony. But it's, I think it's making an appearance, and it'd be nice yeah. to hear from listeners yeah. if they have any insight. It yeah. did come out in mine. Oh, it did? Oh. Yes. Oh, my Fry Mac hearing here in Minnesota. Oh, it, did. It, did. Uh, it was That's it right. was used, and I did have to read excerpts from from the report. But the defense did recognize that I was a reviewer and author of the primer, so I don't know if that <laughs> reduced the level of scrutiny that I received or or gave it's, me more. Yeah. But either way, it did it did appear as an exhibit that was offered to the judge. It's kind of hard to use that it's not a learned treatise argument when you're one of the <laughs> reviewers of the paper. Right. Um, I also could not say, I don't know. Oh yeah. Yeah. True. So yeah, if you've got anything like that, uh, or even just any questions you want Glenn and I to cover in the next episode that where we talk about the AAAS report in more detail, please let us know. And uh, we will make sure to include that in our discussion. Uh, so Remember, the opinions that we express on this program are our own and not necessarily those of any agency that we may or may not represent. Uh, you can follow us at Double Loop Pod. Uh, that's a good way, way to interact with us and uh, you know see when updates are coming out. Follow us there on Twitter. Uh, or just uh, make sure to listen to all the episodes on Stitcher, SoundCloud, or on iTunes. Give us those five-star ratings when you listen there. So with that, I'll talk to you guys next time. Bye, everybody. Have a good week. Bye. Thank you.